0: with uh, hope and with grace and with love. Um, God, uh, this morning as we open up your word and hear you speak yet again this morning, uh, Lord, these words still filled with grace, hope, and love, but God, they may challenge us in a way that that challenges us beyond measure. And so God, as, as we do this, as we enter again into your presence and hear you speak, we ask that you give us the courage by your Holy Spirit to open up dark corridors of our heart that haven't been opened in a very long time, if ever. And it's in your name, risen Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Um, uh, We continue our series here this morning at Encounter on the big picture, where we take a look uh, throughout the Bible, throughout Jesus, uh, the story of Jesus and the story that God is telling. And we look about how, how each book of the Bible, dropping in in different places, tells the Jesus story in its own unique way, to its own unique people and its own unique time and place— even if that means it's long before Jesus was ever born. And so if you've been tracking with this series so far, we've dropped in on, on books like Genesis and Ecclesiastes. And, and this morning we, we drop in on admittedly a more difficult book, as you may have uh, picked up in the prayer this morning. We drop in on the book of Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations is a, is a book of the Bible that I just want to be totally honest with you. and says it's probably like the least fun book of the Bible in like, of all 66, I think. You kind of hear right in the name, the title of the book, Lamentations, the first few letters of this word lament. Which means like this crying out, this, this appeal to God that says, like, uh, God help me, notice me. But, but as much as it is a, a request for help, I think even more than that, it's just simply a crying out because, because the lamenter, whether that be Jeremiah as it is here in the book of Lamentations or, or you and I today, the lamenter just simply needs to know that, that someone else knows about the pain that I'm walking through, the suffering that I'm walking through, the, the pit or the lonely place that I'm in. And lament says, notice me. I just need to know that I'm not alone. And so, like, immediately when I say that, I'm guessing that there's a few people in the room right now who just said, like, that's me. And so as the description of lamentations and lamenting comes up, there's probably a few people in the room who are like, hey, you can say like nothing else. You, I am tuned in and locked and ready for whatever God has coming because that's my situation. I'm going to guess that the majority of the people in the room aren't in a season of lament, aren't in this, this time or place of this pit or this lonely place in life. there's that, probably the case that, that most of you are going, pain like suffering, uh, this is a beautiful Michigan summertime, and I like the only affliction that I may be experiencing is is a couple of cold days that remind me that January is coming. Uh, but but I am not I am not in that place right now, and, and so the temptation maybe is to say. It's possible that this book, Lamentations, may, may apply to me in a different time and place, different season in life, but, but, but not right now. And so maybe this just checking out temptation comes in. I just want to say, um, hey, hang in there. Uh, for uh, 20 minutes this morning or so and, and just kind of walk with us as we open up this book because I, I think that there's something here for you. If, you. if you stay engaged, I think you'll notice it because chances are you've picked up on a phenomenon that's been going on for uh, a number of years now uh, this season and I think it ties into maybe why you need to pay attention. Namely, in the summertime, uh, spring, kind of summer leading into fall, summertime is a, is a great time for reflection, for kind of pulling out that memory album, going on uh, social media, Facebook and Instagram, especially on Thursdays, throwback, what? And, uh, and taking a, a trip down memory lane. And uh, springtime, it's like graduation season, and like the old-timey pictures come out of you or someone else, maybe your kids, and they're like yellow and they're discolored and it looks like it's an Instagram filter, but it's not. It just actually is that old. Um, And and the comment that comes along with it, or the caption, or, you know, when somebody says, it's like, this kid thinks he has the world figured out. (laughs) It's implication, you know, subtitle, he doesn't, Right? Maybe that was you. It's like the the comment that comes along with it is there's a lot of life coming his way. It's going to come faster towards him than he ever even knows right now. Or in uh, as you move into summertime, it's like uh, wedding season, but also anniversary season. So you can't help but see all these trips on memory lane that, that say something along the lines of, of like old timey wedding pictures. And the comment is like so in love, uh, but so clueless. At <laughs> the same subtext, right, is that there's pain coming. Something's coming down the way. And so even if you're not in like a season of grief or a season of loss right now, if that's not your situation at all, I just want to say it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Uh, Tim Keller, a lot of this material is going to be borrowed from a book that he wrote called uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's going to be on the website when you click on Hearing a Message. You'll get a link to the, to the book uh, as well. Highly recommend. But, but he reflects on this uh, kind of phenomena down memory lane and not a question of if and when. He goes, you know, when, when Kathy and I get married, we're... In retrospect, just kids. And I remember on our wedding day, I remember at the moment when we were taking our vows, taking each other's hands with rings in them for the first time, and we're saying words about life and death. We're speaking promises, vows about sickness and health. We're talking about, about poverty and great wealth. And he's like, the irony is at that, that moment is that as kids, we knew nothing about death. We knew nothing about sickness. We knew not we thought we knew about poverty, but we knew nothing about what it means to truly be poor. And so he's got this awesome line that says, At that moment, looking back to talking to, to when we were just kids, we hadn't suffered as much as an ingrown toenail. But we would. Eventually, he writes, I, eventually, I would hear those words coming from a doctor in a white coat. You, you have cancer. And the months and the years that will battle on, he writes about. And his wife, he says, in many ways, that was, hers was even worse because I had to watch it happen with somebody else when her Crohn's disease became so unbelievably acute. And it was like surgery after surgery after surgery, seven of them in one year. And he goes, I had to wonder, you know, if I could even continue on doing the thing that I loved the most in this world, my work, I had to wonder whether or not I even could in order to provide her the care that, that she needed. And so I just want to invite you, especially if you're not in a season of life when you're suffering right now, to, to think about those old-timey pictures, especially to think about the, the more recent ones. And, you know, and, to, and to just maybe look at those old pictures and to say, and to say, that kid has no idea what he's in for. And then maybe whisper under your breath, and neither do I. Because it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And just to, to relay maybe the stakes about this, I think, I think that the decisions that you make in the pit— what you decide, what you choose to think about, what you choose to spend your time with in the pit when suffering and pain come your way, I think that those decisions will have lifelong implications on those people around you and on your character and on your relationship with God. I even think that the decisions that you make in the pit have eternal consequences. And so I just, I just invite you to hear this book of Lamentations and say this book is a gold mine for making decisions amidst pain and suffering. And what we hear from Jeremiah about what he asks from God and the posture of openness that he has towards God, I think that if we can apply those to today, the type of person that we can become in 20, 30 years is going to look so much like Jesus, maybe more than you've ever thought possible. Um, but the book of, of Lamentations itself, uh, five chapters long, not really long. It's still read oftentimes today in different circles uh, in a more uh, Orthodox Jewish context. It's read at the, uh, the Wailing Wall every season, uh, every year, and uh, at the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, I believe it is, where the people come and they, they read through five chapters. Um, outside of the Bible, we kind of get like a political sort of perspective on what happens historical, and then we jump into the Bible to maybe get the raw human kind of reaction, emotion, behind it from Jeremiah the prophet who writes about it. Uh, basically what it is is Jeremiah lamenting, lamentations, he's crying out to God over the destruction of his city, Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom in Israel called uh, Judah. Uh, politically, what happened is that uh, there was a big nation, Babylon, that uh, decided, uh, hey, you know what, it's, it's easier for us to not have to invade other nations. In fact, that's very, uh, it, a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of money goes into conquering and, and pillaging other countries. What's much easier is to like, flex our muscle, and then instead of sending an army, we send a bill, <laughs> and we say, hey, pay up or else. And more often than not, that threat is enough for somebody to, to pay tribute to the Babylonians. It's like, we didn't even, we had to, we didn't even have to send anybody over there. Um, so that was happening in the southern kingdom of Judah for quite a while. In fact, so long that there was a king over Judah who was essentially a puppet governor of sorts from Babylon, just sent there to make sure that the people paid up. They paid their taxes, they paid their bills. His name was Zedekiah. Eventually, he decides, you know, I don't think we need to do this anymore. He hatches a treaty or a peace deal with the southern uh, powerhouse of Egypt and says, hey, if I give you less than what I'm giving them, can you back me up? Can can you provide support? Because they don't want to do this proxy battle through this little thing. We're not worth it. And so Egypt says, sure. And so he stopped paying Babylon. They start paying Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon decides, listen, If we can't have them, no one can. And he sends an army to lay siege to the capital Jerusalem. It's a big city with uh, tall walls, thick walls. And so instead of just attacking it and taking on a lot of casualties, that they could because they were that much bigger, but instead of doing that, they decide they're going to surround this place and then just wait. For 30 months, two and a half years, they just wait And they cut off everything coming in and everything going out. No food goes in, no water goes in, no sanitation comes out. They just wait for two and a half years for starvation, dehydration, and just rampant disease to set in on the the city of Jerusalem. And then when the people are so weak, then they attack. Now, from an archaeological perspective— Uh, this was rather common happening. And you look at the the, kind of the damage that's sustained. In most cities, most of the damage happened on the outside, the perimeter of the city. Because as they would wade and starve them out, then they would kind of like collapse in on it, uh, attacking from all sides. And so the outside walls would suffer a huge amount of damage and then less and less and less as you got towards the inside of the city, towards the city center. Jerusalem is an exception to that rule. Because what the archaeological evidence shows is that the most damage that was sustained in the city was not on the outside, it was on the inside, the exact center of the city, and then the damage got less and less and less as it moved its way out. What this means is that the religious center, the government center, the commercial center, the temple, the palace, the people sustained the most damage. You can just imagine this from from a citizen's perspective of that city. It's almost like as the invaders are running in, they're, they're like saving their energy to get to where, to inflict the most pain, where it'll hurt the most. And the evidence shows that, that the most damage was sustained at the exact center and then less and less as it gets out, opposite of what you think as a way to, to hurt the most. It's kind of what's happening from a geopolitical perspective, Jeremiah, the prophet, sees it a different way. He writes to us, and by the way, he's writing from Babylon because he was taken into exile. We can think of him as essentially a slave living a thousand miles away from home. And he's writing about this in Jeremiah 1, verse 1. It's on the flow sheets and on the screen behind me. And he starts off and he just says, How, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people, How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations? She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Listen, I chose to just share with you the first verse of the five-chapter-long book of Lamentations because, honestly, a lot of the book is just maybe too graphic, even. And if we don't need to go into that much detail this morning, we won't. But I just want to tell you that it starts off this way, and it's going to end this way. And what's in the the middle of the book is going to be stories, accounts from Jeremiah that talks about kings, princes, everyday people being murdered, being killed in cold blood. He talks about cannibalism breaking out into the city due to the starvation and and the, the armies invading the siege that they're under. He's going to talk about what it means to have his temple destroyed. The, the identity of his people has always been Emmanuel, God with us. And now, where is God if not at the temple? He, he used to be here. We used to, we used to draw near to him and, and experience his presence here. But, but now, the final verse in the book of Lamentations, 522, says, uh, says along the lines of, you know, rescue us, but but... If not, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure, the note that it ends is, maybe he's not with us anymore. Maybe we're done. Uh, This is uh, Jeremiah's lamenting before God. Uh, Lamenting, by the way, is an... uh Appropriate word to describe it. Uh, in Hebrew, though, the name of the book is, uh, is how, the Hebrew word for how. It's the first word that was picked up here. A key into what it means to lament before God, too. How deserted lies the city? It's almost like it's a, just as much a question mark as it is an exclamation point. How? How did this happen? He's questioning, he's asking God, how? But he's also just making the comment. Uh, it, Lamentations 1 starts off and he's writing like it's from the, the perspective of the city. You know, as you like skim through Lamentations, the first chapter, um, he's writing and the city's wondering like, how did this happen? How did our armies leave uh, not defend us? Uh, how, how did God not come to our rescue? How did we bring this on ourselves? How did, how did the invading armies get God's favor and take us? I mean, there's like this questioning going back and forth on the part of Jeremiah that says, maybe it's his fault. Maybe it's God's fault. Maybe it's her fault. Maybe it's our fault. It's just like this back and forth. It's, it's tempting as you read through Lamentations to start to think that, that maybe it's like this incoherent rambling that the author is just like skipping his way through without much thought behind it. But I encourage you not to see it as incoherent rambling. I think it's, it's critically important to us when we're in the pit to see that he's not just incoherently rambu- rambling, but he's staying engaged and he's putting God's feet to the fire and saying, How? And we know that he's not incoherently rambling, that he's staying engaged because of the, the, the devices, the, the literary work that is Lamentations. It's fascinating that this book is five chapters long, and each chapter has exactly 20 or 22 verses. In them, 22 verses, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And how he structures the chapters as he goes through is that, uh, is that every verse starts off with a Hebrew letter and he goes in the order of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, kind of right down the line. And so uh, it's a, an acrostic is the literary device that, that he's using. So he starts off in English, it would be something like in each chapter... A is for affliction, and he would describe a scene of affliction. B is for bitterness, and he would describe the bitterness. And he'd go through the entire alphabet, end chapter, new chapter, he starts over. A is for, B is for betrayal, C is for, and he'd go through it again, again, again. Chapter 3 has 66 verses. He's got three sets of going through the Hebrew alphabet, describing the pain, describing the suffering, and all through it asking, How? how does God let this happen? He asks. If you're in a time of pain, if you're in a time of loss, and you read through the book of Lamentations, literally the name of the book in Hebrew, how? Maybe that's a good question to start with. Just as much an exclamation point as it is a question mark. How? You have to be ready for the response, though. See, pain and suffering is an odd thing because it feels a lot of the time the same way, no matter what kind of pain, no matter what kind of suffering it is. But when you pull back the curtain, there's a lot of different kinds, and the responses that we get, the answers that we get when we ask, how can this happen, is different. So there's uh, examples of, of pain, of suffering. It could be something like betrayal. Uh, how can this happen? How is it, right, that somebody that I cared so deeply about could, could, could cut me so deeply? There's uh, examples of loss, which is by the way universal. Everybody experiences loss at some point in our lives. Probably you remember the first first funeral that you went to of somebody that you knew well, and maybe touching the, the, the casket of somebody that that took you fishing and saying, How can this happen? This loss. And there's like this mystery kind of suffering that we don't we don't ever like get or understand or why that it happens. It's like Job in the Bible where we're just catastrophe, for whatever reason, seems to just follow this person around. How can this be? What I'm saying is there's a lot of different kinds of suffering, and a lot of those that I just mentioned, like, like we have no part in. They, 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 like, happen to us. That doesn't mean that there's not an appropriate response to it. Suffering, uh, pain, it has this unique ability to shake us. So, like, you've heard of a Hollywood actress or something along those lines where where some uh, tragedy happens. Something befalls, a tsunami in Indonesia, Robin uh, Williams uh, taking his own life earlier this week, something shocking and surprising, and somebody coming out and saying, somebody who has, who has never spoken a word or given a thought to God's action in this world, but when tragedy strikes, she or he moves from indifference to anger at God. And you say, where did that anger come from? I thought, I thought you didn't care. But, but suffering, but pain has a way of moving us. It's very, very difficult to stay indifferent amidst the pit, amidst the pain, amidst the suffering. Oftentimes it, it moves us away. Sometimes it moves us toward God. I think maybe even most of the time it moves us towards God. I want to know how. Asking, asking God is the first step. But we have to be prepared for the answer. Because like I said, not all suffering is the same and the reaction isn't always the same. Sometimes like the examples that I gave, it's, it just happens to us and we have very little role in it. This is going to be the hard kind, though, in the book of Lamentations. This is going to be the very unpopular word to speak. This is going to be the most difficult challenge that perhaps many of us, more difficult than we have ever received challenge before in the past, is that maybe we did have something to do with it. In the book of Lamentations, maybe this didn't just happen to them. Maybe they played a role in bringing it on themselves. Jeremiah asks, how? How did this happen to us? And the word that he received from the Lord is a reminder. You know how it happened. You knew the deal coming into this. As a reminder for us of what Jeremiah came to, uh, 2 Kings 21, verse 13 to 16. It has happened quite a few years before Jeremiah, but it was written down in the, in the people remembered where God said, I, I will, I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I'll forsake the remnant of my, of my inheritance and give them into the hands of the enemies. They will be looted And plundered by all their enemies. I mean, just imagine Jeremiah, like, remembering, recalling these words as an answer to how. Why did this happen? How can this be? Verse 15 They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh, he's the king of Judah at the time. Manasseh has a key passage here shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Besides the sin he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I just can't get this picture. Filling Jerusalem with innocent blood from end to end. You know, uh, one of the Bible uh, books that we, we've dropped in on, it was the book of Joshua. And we said, don't, don't forget when they came in, um, there, was some, there was war that broke out and it's hard for us to come to terms with that. But one thing, among a lot of other reasons, but one thing we have to realize is that these were not completely innocent people. Is that God actually put his people on hold in Egypt while he dealt with those Canaanites, the people who dwelt in the land before the Israelites. And he said, I'm putting you on hold in in prison and slavery for 400 years because their sin has not reached its full measure. And so he goes, listen, as as long as they're not as bad as they could be, I'm not going to pour out my judgment on them yet. There's something redemptive in there yet. And eventually that, that be, it reaches its full measure in the form of, of going outside these cities and these temples that are built up to the gods Molech and they take the most vulnerable there of their society about children and women and, and put them on the altar. And God says, now. Now it's happening. Now I'm, I'm opening it up. Now they need to be wiped out. And as Israel came in and as they were the tools that God used to do that, he says, this doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you i will wipe you out too just like them if, if you do the same things and jeremiah realizes we did we became just like them we built the altars to molek on the outsides of the city we brought our children we bought our women we brought people out there and the blood of innocent people fills jerusalem from end to end how can this be in some way, we have to realize that the pain and suffering sometimes we bring on ourselves. As unpopular as that idea is. Woman's very successful climbing the corporate ladder. People notice her. She gets promoted. Lots of success follows in her wake, but, but also in that same wake It is like waves of, of broken relationships, uh, broken promises about, about corruption and about twisting arms and about just getting it done no matter what the cost. And eventually it catches up. She makes a decision. There's some losses to the company. Except for everybody's thrilled to exaggerate the cost of those losses and and her role that was played into it because as she looks at her friend list it's an ally list, it's, it's dwindling smaller and smaller and smaller. And so she wonders now in the pit, how can this happen? How did my career become become ruined over something so so relatively small? How is it that so many people came out of the woodwork to, to simply to attack me? She to has this realization in the pit that, that maybe some of this I brought on myself. Maybe I can't treat people that way. And maybe pain and suffering was the only way of moving me from indifference towards God. And that's what happens with Jeremiah. As he recalls the scene of a city plundered, people hurt taken himself off in exile he can no longer stay in a position of indifference towards god no one can but instead of moving away he asks god he gets the word of why it happened the role that he played in it and he moves towards god listen to these words Uh, Lamentations 3, 22, that's a key passage in the entire book of Lamentations. If you're looking for a memory verse for each uh, book of the Bible, this is the one. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. In midst such horror, he says, great is your faithfulness. Oh God. Suffering moves him towards God as he writes these words at the the high point midway through the, the book of Lamentations. One thing though, one thing he had to be aware of, he asked God, how can this be? He received God's word. You've played a role in it. He has to ask. He has to be open and honest with the response that God gets. He has to be receptive to that. If you're in the pit right now, if you're amidst pain, particularly if you think that maybe, maybe some of this is on your hands as well, ask him how can this be? Be open, be receptive to the word that God, gets, God gives. Doing those things moves us towards God amidst pain and suffering. So, so that fast forward 20, 30 years, if we make the decisions to ask and be open to whatever God has for us, maybe it's possible that, that when the suffering, when the pain, when the pit comes our way, that we can become the kind of people that every time garbage happens in us, we're driven that much closer to God than when we were before. Imagine if we were the kind of people, we were the kind of community that when we experience pain and grief and loss, every time it happens, every time evil comes our way, it's like this this tool that, that drives us closer, drives us like a hammer into a nail, into the board of God's grace and God's love. And every time garbage comes our way, we find ourselves that much more grafted into him and his son, Jesus Christ. The lamenter, Jeremiah, had to realize something, that when he lost everything, it was all gone. Nothing left, still remained, was the Lord's great love. And by asking and by being open to whatever God has, his posture goes from, God, how can you let this happen, to, in the next phrase, God... How could it be that you didn't destroy me too? How could it be that you let me? How could it be that you gave me mercy? How could it be that we are not consumed? He switches it around as he realizes what he still has after everything is gone, the Lord's great love. And ultimately, that's what we have to hang on to. After everything is gone, and it will be gone. I'm sorry if if you don't want to confront that, but loss is coming. And when it happens, you have one thing remaining, the Lord's great love. And as Jeremiah tells the story of Jesus way before Jesus was ever born, John will pick it up in that gospel. In John three sixteen, well, he says, Because of God's great love, for God so loved the world, he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jeremiah's Jesus story is when everything goes away, we still hang on to God's great love. We ask, How can the suffering be? We be open to the response, and we stay engaged. I mentioned that before about him, Jeremiah, writing this poem painstakingly. He's not incoherently crying out, he's engaged. Engaged for him means taking the time to write an eloquently worded lament, a how poem before God. Staying engaged for us. Go to church even when you don't want to. Pray to God even when, you, even when you're furious at him, when you're angry at him. Opening up his word to hear him speak even if you're thinking that maybe it's possible he doesn't even exist. Ask, open, Engaged. If you're not ready for challenge, if you're in the pit and you're, if you're in suffering and you're not ready to be, to be prodded forward this week, if you're in a place particularly of saying, we'll end on this, of, of saying, how can God care? Like so many people who don't get driven towards God, if, if pain and suffering move you from indifference to anger, I don't know why it happens. You know, in fact, probably no one that you're going to talk to knows why it happens, why it comes your way. Uh, Anne Lamott wrote this week. Uh, she wrote about uh, about pain or about suffering, and she said, I, "I've learned something. I've I've learned that that just because it's just because I can't make sense of it doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning." Just because we can't see it doesn't mean something's happening. If you're in a place of being angry at God for, for, for not acting up, for not stepping up, I don't know what the reason is, but I know what it's not. I know that it's not that God doesn't care or God doesn't love. Because the method to which he sought to root out evil in this world was through his own suffering through his own pain. We know that God isn't indifferent because he chose to put himself up on that cross. If we imagine some of the most horrific kinds of of pain that can be inflicted on us, isn't it true that, that that the pain that hurts the most is the type of pain from somebody so close? That it stings a little when a stranger harms us? It hurts a lot more when it's a boyfriend or girlfriend. The pain from a a spouse or from a parent could impact us with, with psychological damage that we may not get over in our lifetime. The pain that Jesus willingly suffered on the cross on our behalf was one of such close relationship even before creation being coexistent with his father and having an eternal and infinite relationship with him, yet being on that cross, and forget about blood and nails and any kind of descriptions that you have heard about Jesus on the cross, and simply imagine what it means for, for God's son and an eternal relationship to hang on that cross and to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know why God allows pain but I know that it isn't that he doesn't care because he's willing to go through it himself. Let's pray together. God, for those of us who are in the pit right now of affliction, of suffering, God, whether or not we had a role to play in this or, God, whether it just happened to us, I pray that, that you give us the courage by your Holy Spirit to to look at this and to hold your feet to the fire and say, how can this happen? How can this be? God, give us insight, if not insight, into why it's happening. God, give us simply your presence to know that through it all, you still care and you're still with us. It's in your name we pray, amen.